Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Envelope. Today's guest is someone who's already had quite an impressive, multifaceted career at the age of just 29. She's an actress, singer, TV host, meme queen, and I'm talking, of course, about Kiki Palmer. Did I, did I miss anything, Yvonne? Uh, yes, Mark. Actually, you did, because this month she just joined the hosting club of Saturday Night Live, where, by the way, she revealed she's pregnant. So in short, we're slacking, Mark, a lot. <laughs> but yes, it's such an exciting time to talk with Kiki. You know, this summer, she really wowed critics and audiences with her performance in Jordan Peele's Nope, really showing off her comedy and drama muscles. In the film, she plays Emerald Haywood, the exuberant sister of Daniel Kaluuya's more serious character, O.J. The two siblings discover this curious and threatening presence in the sky and set out to capture it on camera. It's this social thriller that tackles many poignant themes like race, exploitation in art, and capitalism. Jordan actually wrote Emerald specifically for Kiki, and some have already called it her best performance yet. It's quite the peak to an already storied career. But Mark, I'm curious, like, when did she sort of get on your radar? I mean, of course, I saw her as a child performer in Aquila and the Bee, but that seems so long ago now. And I, I think I really took notice of Kiki in her current incarnation with Hustlers as one of the dancers who scam their clients at a nightclub. Her energy <laughs> just burst right off the screen. Oh, for sure. You know, she's got such a vibrant personality, and it's been fun to see this moment she's having and how that you know, magnetism has evolved as her career has matured. And in our conversation, she tried to unpack how she maintains her sense of self and that authenticity while surrounded by everyone else's perceptions of her. And, you know, we also got into how she plans to take her career to the next level. And let's just say I was taking a lot of notes, but enough about me. Let's get into the conversation. Kiki, thanks so much for joining me today. Yes, thanks for having me. So, Kiki, you've been working in show business for a long time. I, I actually want to read through some of these numbers out loud. You're 29 years old right now, and this is your 20th year in show business. Like, how does it feel to be, you know, marking this moment in time with what is arguably your biggest role to date? as Emerald in Jordan Peele's Nope. It feels incredible. The whole experience was just something I'd never experienced before. And so I'm just grateful to still be able to surprise myself or for the industry to surprise me after 20 years of doing it. Well, what about Nope felt new for you as an actor, as a performer? Like, in what ways did you surprise yourself or sort of see your capabilities in a, in a new light? I think being able to, um, first of all, have the, the space to explore at such a scale with someone that is obviously as gifted and talented as Jordan Peele was incredible, but then also still being able to reach a dramatic place and an emotional spot with Emerald that a character that usually is deemed as the comic relief doesn't usually have. So I was happy about being able to kind of bridge these two archetypes of Jester and Orphan together to create, you know, what is the character Emerald. And then I would say the collaborative aspect of the project, I think, was unique. Jordan is an extremely collaborative writer and director. You know, maybe that comes from his background with sketch and, and just being a, a talented comedian. And regardless of what the reason is, I was really appreciative of it. It's the type of a experience that I will, like, just always remember. I really just really adore him. 
Well, I want to like expand on that a little bit. What's a note that you remember him giving you before a scene that really helped you find what you were after or really helped you give him maybe what he was looking for? You know, he's not really overly noty. Like the way that I think he gives direction is based off of a conversation or a feeling or a space in which he puts you in. He kind of creates the stage and allows you to perform through that. And I think I just remember the specific scene that we had at the end where I'm like screaming to my brother. I'm like, come on, come on, when I'm on the motorcycle. And I remember feeling so, through the conversation and through what we were talking about, I remember getting so frustrated and feeling so frustrated and then finding myself giving that exact performance, which was exactly what Emerald was. It was the conversation that we had leading up to that that brought me to that place. And I just remember feeling like, you know, very happy about the performance because, again, of the space he creates. Mm. Jordan is not afraid to take up time and to take up space. But I think him having the background that he has as, as a performer as well, that allows him to then create that space for other actors in a way that I think doesn't generally happen unless the director really is experienced with actors or is an actor himself. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and Jordan has said that you're a brilliant improviser, that in at least one case, you gave him like 14 wildly different takes on a scene. Tell us about that scene and what you were sort of going for, what parts of it were improvised. Break it down for me. <laughs> well, I am the kind of performer that, Honestly, in this, I always tell people that sometimes I hate this because I put it all on the table so much so that sometimes people push me further. And I'm like, you guys, like, now, come on. It's, it's, it's almost <laughs> like you can see that someone can hit a three-pointer, so you, like, make them hit three-pointers every damn second, even when they're not <laughs> fucking necessary. You're like, come on, give me a damn break. And so, you know, that was, like, the first, one of the first few days of shooting. And this monologue that my character had was not even in the original script, like, it was like something I found out the week before filming, like, when the hell did I get this monologue? When the hell did Jordan write me, <laughs> write me this goddamn monologue? And so I'm an overachiever by nature. I don't know if it's because I'm a middle child or if it's because I'm a Virgo, but I overprepare in every scenario. And he kept on doing takes of it, you know, and I was doing it, there was no mistakes. So I was just like performing it and performing. It. And then as we mm. start getting to the sixth time, the seventh time, I'm like, well, shit, let me add something to it. So he's not just seeing <laughs> the same performance over and over again. And it was like the last scene that we filmed of the day. And we had like maybe 30 minutes, 20 minutes or something to get it. And so I was like, shit, I'm gonna go balls to the wall. And I just started improving and I had a lot of fun enjoying that. You're going to have to give me some tips because sometimes even with this podcast, like they're asking me to improvise <laughs> in the intro and I'm like, Guys, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to, like, not give you what you want. I get in my head. Yeah. How long before you sort of got out of your head to be able to do that? You know, I think I've always been an improviser in life. And what I mean by that is, like, I hate dead space. So whenever there's, like, dead space or, like, something awkward going on, I'm like, yeah, so, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, nah. You know, I just end up trying to do something <laughs> to fill that space. So it's kind of like a nervous tick, I'll be honest, that the natural or innate ability to kind of improv is so that there's no empty space. And then I think I became aware of it and started honing in on it through practice. Mm. I did a little bit of it, obviously, on True Jackson VP, which was a multicam sitcom, but it was on a kid network, so it, I was limited in terms of how, where I could grow in that, in that facet. But 
it definitely helped me hone into my comedic skills. And then after that, I ended up doing Screen Queens. And I remember I did some improv sessions because I felt like, hey, I don't know how many lines that Ryan Murphy's going to give me for this, but I'm definitely going to make sure that I'm ready. And when the lights are on me, I'm going to offer something different or try to improv wow. and add what I can. And then I also watched great people like Niecy Nash. And I watched her improv. And I'm the kind of person that studies through visualization. So watching her and seeing her also helped. And I think the biggest thing is just to go for it and not be afraid to go for it. And it's all rhythmic. You know, what you add and what you say and what you do and all that stuff, you know, it should come from a place that you think is true to the character. And then also it's musical. Like, I think whether it's lines or whether it's improv, everything is for me about the rhythm of the scene. It's never about trying to steal a moment or take a moment. It's all about riding the waves and adding to the moment. And, and then as it pertains to hosting, it's just about not letting it get awkward. Well, I'll wait for your masterclass and pay lots of money to take that. I'm curious about how the themes of the film resonate with you because Nope like gives a unique commentary on the film industry, on Hollywood, especially as it relates to tokenism and yeah. the desire to feel seen. And, you know, you started in the industry at such a young age and were probably sort of marred by the sense of what opportunities would be available to you. So how... How has the idea of feeling seen in the industry evolved for you? For me, there is something very meta about the way that this film was casted. You know, it's interesting, the storyline of Steven Yun, um, and then the storyline of my character and the fact that I'm also a child actor playing this character. I feel so similarly about how I've been able to not allow the industry to define me and to tear me apart, essentially, coming from being a child entertainer and thinking that there was one way that I had to be or survive or be validated to then realizing that nothing validates me as an entertainer than me entertaining. It's not how many people are watching me. It's not who's watching me. It's not what awards I've received. It's not the popularity that I have or the trends that I'm catching or starting. It's about the fact that I'm just literally genuinely an artist. And Emerald, though she was not like me, she went on a journey of thinking that she had to be seen in order to be valid as a person to at the end of this film when she was working so hard to be seen she is finally seen and it's not even what she expected it to be i think ultimately what i took from it was just that being seen in our generation and and, and definitely for me personally has been based off of so many things that's not real and the only thing that really is real in our lives or the only true people that really see us are the ones that have always been there from the beginning, are the ones that have always loved us, cared mm -hmm. for us, acknowledged us. It's the ones that sometimes we take for granted. Who are those people for you? Definitely my immediate family, my mom, my dad, my sisters, my brother. You know, they've always seen me. They showcase that in the movie between Emerald and OJ, where there's a moment where she's trying to bring up this memory of him seeing her and he doesn't really acknowledge it. But then in the end, you know, it was true all along that he did see her and he was the one that always saw her. Uh, but family doesn't always give you what you want when you want it. You know what I'm saying? And, and family, yeah. they're always dealing with their own stuff as well. You know, we all are struggling and trying to figure out how we want to exist in this world. Um, so for Emerald, she showcased that in a lot of different ways and, and most of that experience going far away from home and exploring all these different aspects and trying to chase what many of us chase. And I think a lot of that is sometimes subconscious. It's not something active. I think my love for entertainment has always been genuine and it, it's never been based off of fame. 
But I think when you are in, in an industry that's constantly exploiting you, it's hard not to know when you are now playing a part in that exploitation yourself. Hmm. And that is, I think, really expressed well in the film as it pertains to Stephen Young's character, who goes from being the exploited Asian kid on a, you know, a very popular American television show to then exploiting himself as an adult years later. Do you, looking back, could you identify a moment like that early in your career of feeling that exploitation? Yeah, I mean, I think I was always, the exploitation, I don't think it's always this terrifying thing. I think sometimes, you know, many of the times it is, but other times it's just kind of like a part of it. Like, I think everybody's exploited in the entertainment industry. I think it becomes dangerous when you are exploited against your will or you are exploited in the ways that you do not wish. You know, you look at a situation like Britney Spears and she was exploited in ways that just totally were unfair and not aligned with probably what she truly wanted as a young woman. Whereas me, I think my parents definitely did do a good job at making sure that I was not exploited in ways that made me feel less as a person. When you look at my roles and the things that I played, especially as a kid, there were roles that could only make me feel proud about who I am. I mean, I was a national B champ. I was the star of a football team, double Dutch champion. I was the vice president of my own fashion company, you know? So they really, they were careful about the ways in which I was being put on display that it was something that in the end that I could be proud of. But there is the aspect of that as a child entertainer, especially once those opportunities disappear, where you have to figure out what you're going to do and how you're going to work from there. And I think that's when things can be, be tricky. And I think I really just took my time with it and didn't focus on, hey, trying to be popular, but trying to figure out what stories I wanted to tell and how I wanted to impact artistry as a whole. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to turn now to your origin story and the film that really launched your career, which, as you mentioned, was Akila and the Bee. And when the film came out, it like had hugely positive reviews for your performance. I remember seeing it in the theaters and like you were just 12 years old. I'm curious, like, what was it like to be on a set of a big movie for the first time? You know, I was 10 when I auditioned for the movie and then I was 11 when the movie actually filmed. And then I was 12 when the movie actually come out. And even though I was really, obviously it was a lot of responsibility I truly enjoyed like being somebody that people could count on. I always had, as a little kid, loved when somebody entrusted me with something. And as an actor on sets and as a performer, it is a responsibility to know your lines, to hit your mark, to do the proper performance, to display the proper emotion. And so all of that was like a game for me. Um, so I just remember having a lot of fun and really enjoying, you know, being an actor. And I think specifically on Akeel and the Bee, I experienced serious actors that also treated me like an actor. Not that they were mean, but they definitely did not give me any shortcuts or treat me like a kid, which I think is a blessing. Like, I remember when I did this one scene with Lawrence Fishburne and I started laughing because he was crying in the scene and he was, uh, obviously he's an older man. And I'm like, the old man is crying. And I started laughing because I was a little kid. And he really got serious with me. He was like, this is unacceptable. You know, this is not what actors do to other actors. You have to hold this emotion and you have to be serious. Wow. And that's something that stuck with me in that experience. And then I remember when I did this one scene with Angela Bassett where, you know, 
this one particular scene, I was having trouble because there was so much chaos going on, I could not quiet the noise and really get into the performance. But the director was getting nervous and he was a new director and Angela said, just, just hold on and let me just talk to her. And when I start moving my hand like this behind my back, you don't say action, don't do anything, just start rolling the cameras. And Angela starts talking to me and she's like, you love acting, don't you? And I said, yes. You know, and she said, who helps you with your acting? And I said, my mom. My mom and I, we do it together, and she always helps me with my lines, and she helps me learn everything. And she said, well, what if your mother said to you one day, I'm not going to help you anymore. And everything that we've done together, it means nothing. And you're not going to be able to have my help anymore. You're going to have to figure out how to do all of this on your own. And so Angela says all that, and then I, I shake my head yes, and I start getting watery-eyed, and she goes into the lines, and we do the whole scene, and we do the whole moment, and I, I remember that. I remember her teaching me how to attach my real life emotions to something that the character was experiencing, to put it in context, which is what's happening that we all can relate to is that Akilah was losing her support system. And we got that emotional scene. That's so powerful. And I don't want to diminish any of that, but I have to say, I really liked your understated Angela Bassett impersonation. <laughs> if anybody's going to give you Angela Bassett impression, honey, it's going to be me. You know I can serve you Angela Bassett impression. She, my latest one that she has me gagged about is when she's like, if God is for you, then who can be against you? No one. Like, why? I, I just want to know why she's so fierce at every damn moment. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> More with actress Kiki Palmer after the break. We talk about growing up while navigating the exploitation that's baked into Hollywood and the people inspiring her next moves. If you're enjoying this interview and want to keep up with more episodes, follow The Envelope from the Los Angeles Times wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, you can leave us a rating and review. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Envelope and my conversation with Kiki Palmer. Now, Kiki, I want to talk more about those early days of your career and the way your parents really shaped your trajectory. You know, some people may not know that your parents were actors themselves, but when you and your siblings were born, they set aside performing for more steady careers. And later, when it became clear that you had so much promise as a child actor, they sold their house and moved the family to Pasadena. What do you remember about that period? Like, that's a lot of change they took on to help you pursue your dreams. Did that weigh on you at all? No, that didn't weigh on me until many years later. I was much too young. I think what I was just thinking about was we going on a road trip, I'm with my family, and we're about to have some fun. I can't wait to be acting. We're going to be living in California. I'm so glad for us all to be here together because my parents worked so much in Illinois that I was also excited about the fact that I, we were going to, me and my siblings were going to get them all to ourselves. And so I was very excited. Mm. So did... Did your parents stop working when they moved to California? Did they find different types of jobs out here? Were they strictly focused on you? So both my parents worked back in Illinois. And so when we first moved to California, the idea was for my dad to find a job and then for my mom to continue to work with me more full time. And then my 
older sister, she was really missing her, just her old life and having the, her freshman year of high school. Yeah. So my parents said, hey, you can stay in, in Chicago for another year to experience your freshman year. Wow. And then when you, you know, after that, you got to come back because we we're very like tight knit family. And then the twins, my little brother and sister, they weren't just in school yet. So I remember them having like babysitters on the set of like Aquila and the Bee and things like that. But ultimately what happened is that it just hit a point where my dad could no longer do a job because if he did a job, then there would be nobody to take care of my older sister and my younger siblings because my mom was always with me. So it was like, you know, just being, we were, all of our roles were switched. I became the financial breadwinner because my career was bringing in the most money and my parents wanted to support me. Uh, but they, they couldn't have their own jobs because their own jobs would not even allow them to really be able to sustain a stable household. So everybody's positions were flipped upside down, which is why some years after that, I did start to feel pressure because I started to realize that I was the financial breadwinner and that if I didn't have a job, who would have a job? You know, or how could my parents yeah. have a job? Or how could we sustain the same lifestyle even if they did have a job? Because... I was making the kind of money that many people never make. So it was just kind of like, it put us in a crazy position. Mm -hmm. Was there a time where your childhood years as an actor were, I don't know, annoying, where you were trying to get out of that shadow? And what have you sort of come to appreciate about that time in terms of how it shaped you to be the actor you are today? Hmm. You know, I remember there was something that people were saying when I came out in time and they said rising star and that offended some people that they said rising star. And I'm like, well, shit, I don't want to be at my destination, you know? Right. So right. If, if I'm if after 20 years, I'm still considered rising star. Well, where the hell y'all see me going? If this is if I'm continuously, I'm still continuously rising. I'm about to be at the goddamn stratosphere. So for me, I don't know if I hated the shadow of it. I think I was always proud of the work I did as a kid. I think I, what I hated was that people thought it should end there. Mm -hmm. Child actors are so often seen as has-beens, especially ones that have reached any type of like major success, you know what I mean? Had their own TV shows or, you know, household names or anything like that. It's like once that chapter is over, people are like, oh, I remember when. And it's like, I'm only 18 years old. And so I think that for me was a little bit weird because it's just like, that was just one chapter of my life. You know, and even now, I still don't feel like I've reached the best chapters of my life. You know what I mean? I'm approaching 30 in 2023, and it's like, this still is just the beginning for me. So I think that was the thing, was dealing with other people, just trying to constantly put their perceptions of what my life should be like and being able to just, like, remove myself from that and, and still maintain my sense of self was, is something that I'm very proud of myself to have been able to do. Because I think that's difficult. You know, it's difficult for everybody to keep telling you who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in addition to Nope, you had a lot of projects on your plate this year. And I'm going to kindly ask that my editor not listen to this because I don't want them to expect this kind of output. But you voiced a character in Lightyear, which was Pixar's latest addition to the Toy Story series. You starred in the thriller Alice. You took on a TV host for NBC's game show Password. I'm curious like how you decide what's worth taking on and what are you after at this point in your career? I take things on that I feel excited about. Simple as that. Things that I'm excited about, things that I wanna do. 
things that I haven't done before, things that I think I'll have fun doing. You know, for me, what drove me for so many years is making sure that I could create a sustainable or stable brand that could then serve as the business model for me as a businesswoman. And I think that I've been able to successfully do that where the brand is Kiki Palmer. Mm -hmm. And if I were to put an example behind it, it would be like, you know, Kiki Palmer is Mickey Mouse and I'm Walt Disney. And that's to me like what, what I want my future to be is that I'm somebody that people can look to in terms of knowing how to market, how to build a brand, how to establish IP, how to create characters, how to tell stories, how to build marketing stories as well as narrative stories and, and, and just be able to be a real genuine creative force on a cerebral level, not just a performer, you know what I'm saying? Like not just be the animator, but actually be the, be the person that's sitting at the table making the major decisions. Yeah, I think what these earlier stages of my career and where I am now has really all been about is establishing my brand and my ability to navigate the industry and create a sustainable career for myself. Well, to sort of talk about that, the person that you present versus like, you know, being the master, like, I'm curious because, you know, the internet loves you. You have fans that are like always calling for you to take on a new role via the internet or they're turning your interviews into memes. And, you know, I'm sort of curious, like people are drawn to your authenticity, but when people come to expect you to react to what's going on in the world with something funny or silly, like how do you keep that from becoming a performance? I do think once people think that you are funny, you could be saying the most serious thing ever and they think that it's going to be funny. So it's like there's not much that you can do about how people are going to perceive you. Like, for instance, I did not mean to be funny with Sorry to This Man. Sorry to This Man is a viral moment from a Vanity Fair interview when Kiki was shown a picture of former Vice President Dick Cheney. I don't know who this man is. I mean, he could be walking down the street. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know a thing. Sorry to this man. You know, there's never, it's like nothing in my bones that was like time to do, to drop a little humor here. Like that was so genuine on all levels of like, hell, I'm sorry. I don't know who this man is truly. And so I hope that nobody's pissed at me for not knowing who this man is if he's important. So like that was just such a genuine moment that, you know, I can't, I don't know why people found that funny. And it was just something that was out of my control. And so, hey, it is what it is. So I think for me, you know, I just try my best to be genuine and authentic. All you can do is just keep being you. Right. I mean, if if your performance in Nope is sort of a, a turning point in your career, what does the next half of your career look like to you? Like, what are you after? I'm hoping it's a hodgepodge between... Dick Clark, Oprah Winfrey, and Ron Howard slash Jordan Peele. That's what I'm hoping, okay? I'm hoping that there is some ownership, some creating spaces for the next generation, some cool, fun, original IP, as well as being able to be a, a, a host and have fun, you know, bring fun shows, games, things to the forefront. Like, I'm just in the middle of everything, and that's why I have to bring so many names together to 
say who I am because I really am a unique hodgepodge of a lot of the things that I admire. You know, I love what Dick Clark was able to do in terms of being a host and creating a brand and creating an identity of things that people can look towards for many, many years to come. Very iconic things. That's exciting to me, especially to be able to do that for my culture as it pertains to Gen Z millennials and BIPOC mm -hmm. people. Like, I just would love to be able to do that. And then I love Oprah Winfrey for being a voice, for saying things that are important, but also being something that people feel connected to. And that to me is just like so cool to be able to be a voice in, in that way, to be somebody that people just want to hang out with in their living room on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. I love that. And then when I look at people like Ron Howard and Jordan Peele, I mean, I love Ron Howard for being a child star. I mean, I used to watch him on Andy Griffin with my dad. And then he became who he is today from American Graffiti to directing and to, to producing. And just that's that's the way you want to do it. And the same thing with Jordan going from being a comedian and being somebody that people thought only did one thing to then transforming an entire genre and offering something that wouldn't otherwise have been offered. So for me, I kind of like look at all those critical pieces that those people have offered to me. And I want to be able to somewhat do the same in all the different fields that I've been able to pave for myself. You didn't mention Beyonce and, and you know, you, know you have a singing career. Uh, is that still something you want to keep pursuing it is, too? It is, it is. And, I, and for me, it has to come into the form of also the theater. It has to also have the theatrics. And so I'm very excited about, you know, what I can do with music as it pertains to storytelling as well. You know, when I did Star for Fox, I really loved, and I know my audience really loved seeing me in that narrative story with music. And so I'm very excited about exploring even more of that. So I'm glad you brought that up. So yes, there's definitely, you know, Beyonce is my girl, Alien Superstar. That is what you are. <laughs> well, to sort of combine those thoughts, and I'm not trying to generate headlines, this is for me and my happiness. <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg announced recently that she's working on a third film of Sister Act, and she'd love for you to star in it alongside Lizzo and Nicki Minaj. Like, what was your reaction to that, and how do we make this happen? My reaction was, Whoopi, where do I sign on the dotted line? Because Whoopi, I'm ready. I'm ready for whatever that you need from me. Okay, Whoopi is an EGOT winner. Whoopi had her own one-woman show. Whoopi hosted the Oscars. Whoopi is everything. So for her to mention me for the sister act, I mean, I'm here. I'm please, there for whatever that needs to be done. Please. Just call me up. It was awesome. And I'm here for Lizzo and, Nicki, and the Nicki Minaj of it all as well. We need to find a way to get this interview to Whoopi so we can be a part of this sort of manifesting yes. of this role. I'm here for this. I can't wait for it to happen. Well, Kiki, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for taking the time. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. The Envelope is a Los Angeles Times production. It's produced by Taya Francesca Price and Rachel Cohn and edited by Mitra Caboli and Lauren Rabb. This episode was mixed and mastered by Mike Heflin. Our executive producer is Hiba Elorbani. Our theme music is by Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Matt Brennan, Jasmine Aguilera, Shawnee Hilton, Elena Howe, Kayla Bell, Patricia Gardner, Dylan Harris, Brandon Sides, David Veramontes, and Vanessa Franco. I'm your host, Mark Olson. And I'm Yvonne Villarreal. Our next episode is December 13th with Darren Aronofsky, director of The Whale. See you then.